Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our frustration with definitions. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind you once again of the opportunities available to you at chrismoles.org. chrismoles.org. You can find our blog. You can access the PeaceWorks podcast. You can look at past material. You can find coaching opportunities. Uh, and in particular, you'll find access to PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University really is your best next step. Uh, Very much uh, like the PeaceWorks podcast, PeaceWorks University has tons of material, but it's organized. It's put within context like master classes and success paths and uh, toolbox items that can help you function better as a people helper from a gospel-centered perspective. So please check out PeaceWorks University. You can learn more about PeaceWorks U at chrismoles.org. All right, friends. So today I'm going to try to address an issue, and I don't even know if it's an issue. It may be just a concern that seems to pop up time and time again. I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I want to take another opportunity just to step into the water and try to add a little bit of clarity as to the distinction, the issue of definition. And what I mean by that is it seems pretty consistently there are cries and pleas from people helpers, in particular those in the church, to define domestic abuse. Please, Chris, just define it. Please give me a framework. Give me a filter. Give me a rubric by which I can function and structure my responses. And that's not a bad request. It's, it's not like I'm saying, please don't build frameworks by which to operate. We all operate from frameworks. And part of the issue, however, uh, part of the resistance on my part to offer a definition that is the defining framework for domestic abuse is that that's dangerous, to be quite honest, that it is Uh, not only difficult, uh, but it can be so limiting that it takes away from our care. Now, let me address really quick why I think we as people like definitions. I know I appreciate a well-defined term, especially in an area where I'm attempting to engage in help and care. Uh, It helps us have a clear framework and understanding of the problem. So if domestic abuse could be clearly defined, this is what it is and this is what it's not, then it gives me a very clear framework in which to operate to say, now I see it. This is it. This is domestic abuse because it has these five categories, um, this structure, this framework. It's not, right, because it doesn't have those same categories. Uh, However, domestic abuse really does not fall into a linear structure. It doesn't fall into a categorical structure. It's much more broad than that. 
So I understand the concern. I would love to be able to give folks a clear framework, as would many of my peers who've been involved in the work. I think a definition also is desired among people helpers because it will give uh, them the opportunity to develop clear responses. Great. Because I know A, B, and C are categorically abusive, then I can respond with X, Y, and Z. The treatment plan and treatment responses then can become uniform. And I don't mean this in a derogatory way because there are many um, problems of life, issues of life, that can adequately be addressed with kind of a systematic uh, one-size-fits-all approach. I remember my first days uh, in biblical counseling, when I first began the biblical counseling movement, this was a long time ago now, 1999, uh, there was quite a bit of discussion between biblical counselors, those who spent their first several sessions with a counselee gathering data with no agenda, and those who had the same agenda for each counselee for a given period of time. There were counselors who had the exact same agenda for every counselee that came into their office, and the first six weeks of counseling was already planned out. Now, some that hear that will say, oh, that's incredibly attractive. I'd like to do that. Others are listening, are, are thinking, oh, that's incredibly dangerous. Why would you do that? And I think both can be right because the counselee, the circumstances, and the extent to which they're experiencing those circumstances or problems will all affect how we approach counseling and care. So there are some cases, some individuals, some problems where you can have a pre-planned agenda that makes complete sense. It, it saves a lot of time, energy, and effort on both the counselor and the counselee's part if they're going through a uniform process. However, there are others who will not benefit from that, say um, problems that are very unique to that person, circumstances that need to be addressed prior to dealing with the heart, trauma, and abuse may fall into those categories as well. So I think sometimes the call for a definition is give me a framework so I can clearly articulate the responses and I can kind of have a cookie cutter uh, application-based counseling practice um, that can help people. And I think that's the underlying desire is I want to help people. I think the last, and, and again, this is just all kind of um, just thinking out loud, I believe one of the other categories that may fall into this, you know, I want a framework, I want to be able to clearly articulate responses, but I also want a clear conscience. Like, I don't want to just wade into the unknown and live in the mystery of this case and this family and the complexities of the problem. I've often said in trying to articulate the, the distinction between, you know, normal marital counseling, the, the normal conflict of life, right? Conflict resolution, marital conflict, um, a church-based conflict, is this idea of the distinction between fishing with an open face reel and fishing with a bait caster. If you, if you have, have gone fishing, perhaps you know the distinction. You know, an open face reel is a very popular um fishing reel, a spinner, sometimes people call it, and uh, occasionally uh, you'll have a, a line issue, an issue with your fishing line. And um, Normally, it can take a few moments, right, to untangle that. Perhaps you've got it hooked backwards, and there's just a, a, a little bit of things that, a, a few things you can do 
to rewind the line, to reset it. And if you fish with kids a lot, which is what I prefer to do, is, uh, you know, to work with kids and, and watch kids enjoy, you know, fishing, uh, it's not that hard to help them get reset with their open face reel. But a, a bait caster is a different story. If you don't put your thumb on the line at exactly the right time, it'll bird's nest. And you'll be spending not just a couple minutes resetting and getting things. You'll be spending most of your afternoon uh, trying to untangle the bird's nest or possibly getting frustrated and cutting the line. I bring that up to say abuse cases really have a lot more complexity and bird nest kind of um opportunity where you're going to be spending a lot of time untangling and learning realizing that you retangled and have to untangle that that um, you have to take two or three steps forward and one or two steps back that's really the the dance of this type of complex counseling and i think sometimes a clear definition in our minds a, a really firm resolute definition will clear our conscience to say okay, if I have this, then I'm less likely to mess up. And that's a big part of abuse counseling. And I want you to hear me say this. If you're a people helper and you're stepping into this world of caring for a victim, of confronting a perpetrator, I want you to do the best that you can. We, we provide all of these resources so that we can help each other do better, right? So that we can help each other make fewer mistakes. But I just want to encourage you, if you're looking for a mistake-free um, process, you're not going to find one. Not in this world. The complexities and the distinctions between cases and the devastating nature of abuse means you're going to miss some things. You're going to remain ignorant about some things, and you're going to possibly mislabel or misstep in some areas. Our goal is not to provide perfect interventions. It's to help each other provide better interventions. We're not trying to have mistake-free counseling. Because in, in these type of works, you're, you're always going to have someone who feels unheard, unloved, uncared for, unappreciated. Sometimes it's the, the victim. Oftentimes it's the perpetrator. Sometimes it's the home church. Sometimes it's a friend or a family member. There's, there's always a, a party um, in which you are, you are walking in a dangerous situation as far as I could make a mistake, and I want you to be free to make safe mistakes. That's all I'm getting at. And sometimes definitions alone can lead us to knee-jerk, rigid, firm reactions that produce larger mistakes, more dangerous counsel, as opposed to wisdom and discernment, which is required in abuse cases to take step-by-step with the individuals that are suffering and those who are doing harm. You see, domestic abuse is not clean cut. It's not one size fits all. And it's certainly not going to be easily defined. Because abuse does have identifiable actions for sure. But it also has contextual considerations that have to be applied. But let me try to unpack that just a little bit. I think if you were to take just a cross section, let's say you take the current folks in, in just the biblical counseling circles. Okay, let's just take those of us who are in the biblical counseling world who are addressing the problem of abuse. And aren't you thankful today? Just praise God for the numbers of people we have stepping into this work. It was just 10 years or so, 10 years or so ago that 
some of us felt really alone, and now um, the resources are, are are being turned out quickly, and they're powerful and rich, and we have some great counselors in this work. So even if you just take a cross-section, let's say you take uh, PeaceWorks, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, uh, my book, you take Is It Abuse by Darby Strickland and uh, When Home Hurts by um, Greg Wilson and Jeremy Pierre. Let's just take those three because I think those three are kind of the big three right now in biblical counseling. We could we could look at Call to Peace uh, by Joy Forrest, Sanctuary by Sidney Millage, um, and some of the work by Leslie Vernick and put that in there. Uh, Brad Hambrick would be another who's written on this topic. But even if you just take those those three uh, books I mentioned, Is It Abuse, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, and When Home Hurts, I think what you'll find is if you take our attempts to define the term, right, then what you'll find is that all of us have some distinctions. But all of us also recognize one key issue. And this is where I'm coming back to this. Yes, abuse has identifiable behavior, but it also has contextual considerations. Uh, all of us have kind of some different approaches, but our definitions all agree in one area. That's the area of power and control. So um, Greg and Jeremy may talk about one person using their personal capacities to diminish another's personal capacities. Uh, I may talk about an abuse of power, right, that manifested through selfishly motivated patterns in order to control. Darby talks about oppression. So when you consider the, the contextual layers, right, you take the contextual layers and overlay them onto definitions or identifiable behavior, then it, that's where it adds levels of complexity and where I think some folks who are attempting to step into this work or understand the work get discouraged. And here's what I mean by that. Because abuse, as I said, has identifiable behaviors. However, context is king. What was the time, place, manner of those behaviors? Who was exercising those behaviors? What was the impact of those behaviors? And in some cases, what was the intent behind those behaviors? Those are all key questions when dealing with aspects of abuse. Or else, what you end up with is simply recreating a mutualized version of abuse. Or if I may be so bold, and then this is something that's been on my heart a lot lately, what you end up doing more often not is blaming the victim. Because a victim by the very nature of victimhood, and I know that gets distorted in our culture today because it seems like everyone's a victim. But again, we're talking about aspect of domestic abuse, one person using power to dominate, control, coerce another person. Then the victim in this case is being subjugated to another person's authority, position, or power. And so that authority, position, or power has within it um, an impact and effectiveness that the converse does not. And I think that's a really key point that so many folks in the world today and in our movement in particular are very uncomfortable as if to say, you know, this individual used force against this individual. Um, yes, I know the impact was different. I know they both used force, and I know that one person lived in fear, one person suffered, and one person could have uh, been impacted even more greatly than the other, but they both used it, so they're both equally wrong. And I think that's where we're having this difficulty in communication, is to say we can't simply define abuse by its behavior. We have to also define it 
by its context. And now, why in the world would we even do that? I think that's a theological principle. I think that's where our theology speaks best to the problem of domestic abuse, is when we understand the dynamics and impact not only of this relationship between one person who has power and authority and another person who does not, but we also understand how God views that in the context of Scripture. And we can go through the scriptures that you've heard me quote time and time again, Matthew 20, Mark 10, um, the, the powerful passages in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. We could go through biblical narrative and just see the, the ways in which kings and rulers and leaders abused their power and how that affected in, individuals who were being oppressed. We could even take a cross-section of the Gospels and understand that Jesus' resistance to the oppressive um, regime of both Rome and the religious system of the day, while nonviolent, was itself resistance. It, it wasn't simple compliance to existive authority. And so I guess I keep coming back. Chris, can you please define the term? And I'll try. For me, I said it in my book, domestic abuse is first of all an abuse of power manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior intended to exercise or maintain control over another. I avoid, in that definition, as do so many of my friends, giving a clear, linear, here is abuse and here it is not, because abuse is not clearly defined by its actions alone, but by the contextual considerations that surround it. So what would I like to see? Well, I tell you, I think I think we're seeing what I would like to see. More conversations that surround understanding the dynamics and the impact of abuse. How one person's behavior and actions, power, coercion, and control is limiting the agency of another. Limiting their ability to worship. Limiting their ability to choose. Limiting their ability to serve by constricting and confining them to a, um, a, a subjugated role. And in doing so, I think we're, we're, in defining things that way, I think we're providing ourselves the best opportunity to confront the real problem of domestic abuse, which is not, did we break the law? Which is not, did we cross a line? It's really a matter of stewardship. To, much, to, to whom much is given, much is required. If power, position, and authority are part of this discussion, then accountability has to be as weighty as any tool we have in the toolbox. That's it. If, if that is true, then accountability has to be as weighty as any tool in the toolbox. And my fear is that through mutualizing, through creating bullet points of abusive tactics, we're really missing the opportunity to address the heart of the matter, to properly care for victims while at the same time effectively confronting um, abusers. So, I mean, that's my heart today. That's what's rolling around in my head. And my hope, listener, if you're a people helper, and, and maybe you're frustrated, and I get it. Uh, listen, it's not like um, it's not like this 
you'll, you'll suddenly one day wake up after years of doing this work and you'll be less frustrated. <laughs> you know, it, I, I, I can't promise that. I, if you, whether it's secular or Christian, you, you hang out with people who've been engaged in this work in a long time and there's a lot of tired people because uh, this is so weighty and so heavy. So I can't promise uh, relief that somehow it'll be more comfortable and less stressful. Um, but my hope is, my hope is that maybe we would recognize that that's okay. That, that part of the process of doing this work is not having all the answers, not having clearly defined agendas. And there really is kind of a patient walking alongside with wisdom and discernment uh, as opposed to um, clear one-size-fits-all answers. And that's my hope anyway. I appreciate you guys putting up with my ramblings today and, and just allowing me to think out loud. Obviously, this isn't the end of the discussion, but my hope is that we can really embrace wisdom and discernment and see ourselves as becoming that safe place. I think we're well on our way. We're a lot farther along than we were before. And so my prayer is that as you engage in this work, as we all engage in this work, that we would engage safely, um, taking the next wisest step, um, making amends where we fail, and um, celebrating the little successes that we come across along the way. Thank you again for joining us in the PeaceWorks podcast. You're appreciated. You're loved. Please let the platform that you're listening on know how much you appreciate the PeaceWorks podcast. Be sure to uh, rate, review, subscribe. Give us a, a five-star rating if you can. Let the platform know that you appreciate us. and We'll see you guys next time on the PeaceWorks podcast.